Blog Talk Radio. February 24th, 2013 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of current events and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and today, after flying solo for a few weeks, I'm going to be joined by both Yaron Brook, who's the head of the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights, and later cartoonist Bosch Faustin. As I wrote earlier today, I think it's an embarrassment of riches compared to flying solo. Here are the topics that I have planned. I want to discuss seclusion, sequestration, statuettes, and superheroes. So let's just go ahead and dive in. Okay, if you want to call in. No, I'm just joking. I'll give you a little bit more uh, about the topics. By the way, we are having massive trouble with the chat room. I have restarted my computer and tried to launch it, and I'm not able to launch it. I don't know if other people are able to get on it. I'm trying to launch a different version of the chat room right now through the Blog Talk Radio studio, so I'll let you know how that's going. Let me tell you a little bit more about the topics I want to cover today. In terms of seclusion, I I kind of fudged it a little bit. I'm really talking about privacy. I'm going to give you a brief report on my time at Southwestern Law's first annual online privacy conference. And really what I want to tell you about is I asked very pointed questions to Facebook's chief officer of privacy policy and also later in the day an FTC commissioner. So I'll tell you about that. In terms of sequestration, I I cheated again a little bit because I have two actual political topics in this segment. First, I want to talk about the increasing antagonism towards the GOP establishment and the alternative that people are, are shooting for. And how can we also help ensure that someone with the right ideas is part of the alternative? And then I would like to also talk about the impending sequestration cuts that will take effect Friday if nothing happens before then. We will ask your own Brooke about those. Third, statuettes. You may have heard there's a decision to replace models with film students as the statuette presenters at the Oscars. And then fourth, superheroes. I want to talk to Bosch Faustin about a recent Iwo Jima homage comic book cover that features front and center a quote-unquote Muslim superhero. He's obviously got a lot to say about that. And we'll end with at least one item of good news to continue our 2013 trend. I am still having absolutely no luck launching the chat rooms at Blog Talk Radio. So do call in if you want to be part of the discussion. That's 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. The other thing that I'll do is I'll go ahead and launch another window, and I can accept uh, messages at the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook if you want. Uh, if somebody wants to, who can access the chat room, wants to report to me there, I'm not exactly sure what's going on with it. So let me get a new window up for that. Okay, let me tell you about 
the conference that I went to on Friday at Southwestern Law School. It's the Donald E. Biederman Entertainment and Media Law Institute. They had their first annual online privacy conference. And I went there in part because privacy is a topic that I've written and and talked about quite a bit. But also they had some really interesting guests who were speaking at the lunchtime and the dinnertime in particular. At lunchtime, they had an interview with Aaron Egan, who is the chief privacy officer with respect to policy at Facebook. At Facebook, they actually have two privacy officers, not just one, but two chief privacy officers. One is concerned with operations, the other concerned with policy. And then at dinner, they had the acting director of the Bureau of Consumer Protection at the Federal Trade Commission, Charles Harwood. And I had interesting questions for them. The questions that I had centered around something that you may have heard about before um, if you listen to this show. And now I'm having to log out on Facebook and I'm not great at doing all this stuff at the same time. And I'm supposed to log in as myself so I can hear you guys. Okay, let me get this. Sorry, you guys. And you can hear me typing. This is awesome radio. Um, Anyway, what I've talked about in the past is the problem with the Federal Trade Commission and its settlement with Facebook. You know that Facebook was accused in the past of misrepresenting its privacy policy to its customers. And then the Federal Trade Commission got involved and got Facebook to settle and agree to a a quote-unquote consent order with the Federal Trade Commission. Under the terms of the consent order, even though the charges against Facebook were merely misrepresentation with respect to its policy, the consent order gives the Federal Trade Commission control over the substance of Facebook's privacy policy, the substance of the policy, for the next 20 years. And I've talked about this in in past shows before. And to me, it seems like the Federal Trade Commission is using these settlements with these companies as a way to regulate privacy without having to go through the steps of legislation even. Now, I'm against all regulation anyway. I don't think that these things should be regulated. I think the free market should determine whether you like to go to Facebook or MySpace or whatever, Google Plus, other social media. And then whichever one has the privacy policies and mechanisms that you like best, that's the one that you're going to go ahead and, uh, you know, patronize. But For me, the thing that I want to see is that, you know, they just leave it alone. Let it let it just be the free market. And if you are going to regulate, at least you have to go through Congress, right? They have to go through that step. But instead, they're using these settlements. So I asked this question and I asked a certain angle of the question to Aaron Egan, who's the chief privacy officer of policy. I said, you know, I know, I realize you're in this consent order with the Federal Trade Commission, but what about the terms of the consent order that tell you that your privacy policy, the one that the Federal Trade Commission is allowed to supervise, that that privacy policy has to be, quote, unquote, reasonable according to the scope of the operations of your enterprise. There's all these vague words that are in this consent order. And I said, well, how do you deal with the vagueness in trying to craft your privacy policy? How do you, in effect, read the minds of the Federal Trade Commission? She 
herself really tried not to say anything I think that would get them in trouble. As far as I can tell, her job is to go around and convince the world that they're perfectly happy to be supervised by government entities, both here and in the European Union. In the European Union, mind you, there is explicit regulation, very detailed regulation of all entities that do business there. So they have, you know, basically the terms of the consent order that they're under here, everybody's supervised under those terms because of legislation in the European Union. So she says, oh, well, it's perfectly, uh, you know, a great thing because we are perfectly happy to earn the trust of our customers and we just want to do all these things anyway. So isn't it wonderful that we're working side by side with the government to make sure that we are, you know, uh, serving the best interests of our consumers? So that was basically her take. She did admit that the regulations were vague and that it was a little bit difficult to try to craft the policy. She admitted that. And then she kind of winked and says, well, why don't you ask the FTC representative later? So I stuck around till dinner and he talked on and on and on. And he talked way past the end that he was, of the time that he was supposed to. And I thought there wasn't going to be any time for questions. And here I waited all day and I have to ask this question. Finally, I did get to ask my question. I had it written down because it was such a long day. It was a 13-hour day for me. I was tired. I wanted to make sure I got it right. When I pull out my little thing of the written-down question, he says, somebody emailed you a question, didn't they? And I said, no. I wrote it down for myself. And here's what I asked him. I asked him about the fact that whereas the charge against Facebook was misrepresentation, Nonetheless, the terms of the consent order didn't just prevent Facebook from misrepresenting their privacy policy for, say, the next 20 years. What it did, in effect, is give the Federal Trade Commission supervisory power over Facebook's privacy policy for the next 20 years. Uh, so I said, isn't there a little bit of uh, you know incommensurability in terms of the so-called crime? And he actually chimed in. He says, well, you know, it's not a crime. I said, well, okay, I guess it's not a crime. It's a misrepresentation. It's a wrong. I said, but, you know, on the one hand, they misrepresented, and then you're using that to supervise the content of the privacy policy. Shouldn't you be doing this by legislation? All he said, he didn't really ever answer that. He just says, oh, yeah, I know, I know, I know. So I guess he's heard this before from other people, and he was just kind of contemptuously saying, oh, yeah, I know that argument, I know that argument. Uh, the second question I had for him was that – that supervision that the FTC has over Facebook, where they get to come in and look at their privacy practices and policies for 20 years, that supervision, if you combine that with what is in privacy known as the so-called third-party doctrine, which says that if you share information with a company like Facebook, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in that information. And so that therefore, if Facebook turns the information over to the government, it is not a search within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. I said, doesn't this, in effect, give the federal government a backdoor into our personal information at Facebook? He did partially answer that question, at least. He didn't give me a definitive no. But what he did say is he said that Per the terms of the consent order, and this is true, I remember this from my reading, per the terms of the order, Facebook is supposed to be supervised by a third-party privacy 
expert who is approved by the FTC but is not the FTC themselves. And so the report that's generated by that third party is what the government reviews. But then if there's some problem, I guess they can stick their head in. So, yeah, I think they do sort of have a backdoor into your, your information. If you post stuff on Facebook, if you, you share things, no matter whether you do it narrowly or broadly in messages, whatever, just assume somebody at the federal government could at some point read it. I mean, that that's kind of my answer. But anyway, that that's what I do. What, what do you think, Yaron? I think you should assume the federal government knows everything about you. I think you should assume there's no there's no private information. Uh, I I don't assume that the federal government. I assume I take it as a granted that the federal government knows anything they want to know about me. Uh, and I think the laws are vague enough today so that they can, uh, you know, they can do whatever they want. This is this is the fascist state we live in. So, um, I, you know, yeah, be careful what you post. Be careful what you say to people. Be careful what you write down anywhere because uh, you you never know. Certainly on the web. I don't assume anything on the web is private. Um, you know, in one way or another, if they, you know, hackers could get to it. I mean, it's just, it, there's just, a, there's no presumption. I think you can't presume in the way we, in the in in the area we live in today, with with the role of government evolved to where it is today, uh, that they have privacy. I decided this this thing with the government so that I can get into the U.S. really fast. So. You know, I, they, I scan my passport and fingerprints, and I go right in and ask you a lot of questions about why you travel. And I figure, why wouldn't I tell them? I mean, if they really wanted to know, they could figure it out anyway. Oh yeah, no, I, I think they could always waterboard true. me if they really wanted to. I think that that's true. I, I still think it's worth fighting for the principle. Yes, you have to fight for the principle, but don't assume right. that that you're winning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and in particular, it really has bothered me that the FTC has been going around using these consent orders with the companies as a way to regulate the substance of the policies. Absolutely, but think about it this way. This is a this is a strategy that has been evolving in the justice department for in the government for the last probably 20 30 years. They do this with financial companies all the time, right? They they sue them. They never take it to court. They sign a consent decree, and the consent decree allows them to regulate the entity forever. If you think about it, same thing happened with Microsoft, right? Microsoft had a consent decree, um, and they, they were regulators at, in the Microsoft offices supervising all their decisions until, I think, last year as part of this. So it's a backdoor way to regulate industry, and you're absolutely right. The FTC is just picking up with what the Justice Department and, and uh, even state uh, attorney generals have been doing, you know, since I think the first guy who really did this systematically was probably Giuliani. This is why I hate Giuliani. Probably Giuliani starting in the 1980s with Wall Street. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, it's depressing. And if you hear him talk excitedly about the different settlements that they've been achieving lately. There's a company called HTC, which I understand yeah. is a hardware handheld company. And they ended up getting a huge coup of a, a settlement with them from their perspective. No, and the beauty is that they don't, nobody wants to go to trial, right? So you're the government, you see these companies, the company doesn't want to go to trial because it's going to cost them millions of dollars in legal fees. And if they lose, then it's out of their control what kind of punishment they get, right? So everybody settles. Everybody settles. You, you almost never see the government actually taking somebody to court. 
And it, these settlements. So now, what what the government does and Spitzer Spitzer did this all the time. What the government does is it makes up stuff. It 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 uh, it, it uh, prosecutes people for things that they know they can't win, but that they know that people won't defend themselves on it. And then they cut a deal, and that deal usually involves a huge fine, uh, which uh, which the government gets, and it's a huge penalty for the company. And more importantly. A whole series of new regulations that I just said have not gone through Congress, haven't even gone through the regulatory agency, are just basically part of a contractual agreement now with the government. But this is all blackmail. This is pure, pure blackmail. And and you see more of this. I mean, in a sense, we now have a fourth branch of government, which are these regulatory agencies, which uh, are completely independent of the other three. Yes, you know, theoretically, Congress could shut them down, but they never do. And theoretically, the the uh, president oversees them, but it doesn't. He lets them get away with anything, and they basically go out there and they squeeze companies and they get concessions and they get new regulations uh, through the legal system. Yeah, and you know a couple other things too. Uh, first of all, if you ever share information with the government for a particular purpose, if you're a company, you have given up all privileges with respect to that information for any other purpose. So, for example, I can't remember who it was that they had done this against, but he had said, oh, we have such and such company sharing all this information with us. We've promised not to prosecute them, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't matter that that particular agency is not going to prosecute you because then there's no privilege over that information from there on out, and other agencies can go after you. So it, there's a lot of danger for, for companies out there dealing with with the government. Um, the one other thing is that the Commissioner Harwood, he implied that one of the things about it that's sad is that none of these companies have really pushed back against this. Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, and you know, is just perfectly happy to work with the benevolent federal government who just wants to protect all of our privacy, et cetera, et cetera. Well, but I don't know if he's happy about it. Look, what, what is what? What do they get if they fight this? They don't get anything, and they get penalized. And, and people like Mark Zuckerberg and, and the people at Google are very politically connected. Um, you know, this is the price you pay for cronyism. Uh, you know, they're connected in with the government. They, they accept certain decrees. The government turns a blind eye to other things. But at the end of the day, um, what option do these guys have? They don't have an option. They have to do what the government tells them to do. And uh, this is what happens when you get government out of control. This is what happens when you lose any principled limitation on the role of government, which is what we have today. We have unlimited government. That that I mean, if nothing else, that's what, you know, uh, the Supreme Court uh, decided with Obamacare. We have unlimited governments, and, and these regulatory agencies are great examples. They can do almost anything they want. They can squeeze, they can blackmail, they can, uh, you know, they can abuse, and, and they, they, you know, they're accountable to no one. They're accountable to no one. And Republicans uh, don't raise this because they're part of this, right? They're, they're part of this regulatory agenda. Yep. Uh, they don't want to raise it because then when they're in power, they want to use the regulatory agencies to achieve their goals, and the Democrats might object. So uh, this is this is pure power lust, which unfortunately is common to both Republicans and Democrats. And that's a great transition into our next story. The one thing that I did want to say is that the only person who came to me after I asked my question and said, wow, you know, that's a really good angle. I hadn't heard of that before, was someone who I believe is a liberal 
his name was Lewis Maltby of the uh, National Work Rights Institute. And he seemed to be pushing the more liberal agenda in the panel that I saw him, but he was actually impressed with my question, even though the commissioner, the Federal Trade Commissioner, was not very happy. Well, on with certain my issues regarding privacy and, and free speech, we might have more allies on the left than we do on the right. It, it's the quite right possible. generally believes that government should have as much power as it needs to do whatever the hell they want, uh, and, and, and they have very little respect for free speech and for issues of privacy. Great. So let's go into the politics where you are even more phone at call. home. Yeah, we do have a phone call. I'm going to see if it's a topic on a privacy topic. Otherwise, we'll go on to the Yeah, but none of those buttons are working. Hi, who's this? And did you want to talk about the privacy topic? Oh, hi, Amy. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. I was looking at the Oscars right now, and they had that Amy on. No, it, 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 I agree with everything that uh, – your guest is, is saying that it's naive to think anything other than they know everything about us. I mean, it's just it's just a given, and just you have to kind of just swallow that big ugly pill. But I did see something last night where they on a movie I saw at the cinema, and they did mention uh, Ayn Rand, the Fountainhead, and it was just a Hollywood movie that they brought up Anne Rand in order to disparage everything about her and uh, capitalism. So I wanted to discuss that with you because it was in this movie called Identity Thief last night. So I, I do want to mention what they were saying, but this is off topic, so that's what you wanted to find out. Go ahead and go into the, the topic on the politics, and then we'll come back to you. We'll circle back to you. And... Uh, Ask ask you what that is about because that could actually be relevant to what we're saying here. So, the, in this next segment, what I wanted to talk about was sequestration, of course. But a, a little bit before that, just as you were saying, you're on the Republicans are really no better than the Democrats anymore. And I've got a Forbes piece here written by someone named Angelo Cotovilla. The style of it is a little bit ponderous for me. <laughs> I, re I read through it today. In essence, what the piece says is that. Most Republicans and the constituents that they are representing do not agree with the Republican leadership anymore. And that, for example, on January 1st, one-third of the Republican congressmen basically representing the leadership joined with Democrats to legislate for higher taxes and more subsidies for Democratic constituencies, and the rest of us are, in effect, disenfranchised. The piece goes on to call most of us political orphans, that there's millions of people who are no longer represented. It says it's likely that there's going to have to be some sort of third-party alternative in order to get the representation. But then at the end, the kind of punchline is that Whatever this third-party alternative is, it's going to have to bring in all of the different elements of people who disagree with the so-called rhinos, including the extreme religious right elements that are anti-abortion, anti-rights for homosexuals, etc. That uh, you know, they they say that because the Republican establishment has so much money. We all have to band together and basically compromise and agree to have not just the small government fiscal responsibility pieces or, you know, having the government actually serve its proper function of protecting individual rights. You couldn't just have that. Instead, you have to try to tack on 
so-called rights for fetuses and some sort of religious agenda against homosexuals. Otherwise, we're doomed to fail and we can't beat the Republican leadership. What do you think about that, Jerome? Well, first of all, you know, Angela Cordeville is really smart and, uh, you know, he's a Catholic, so he's part of, uh, he's certainly religious, um, and that is definitely part of the way he thinks about the world. Uh, but, but as a religious conservative, he's one of the smartest guys out there. Um, you know, I think he's probably right. That is, he's right in the sense that uh, in order to amass enough people and enough money to really challenge the leadership, um, you, one can't, I mean, from a purely political perspective, you can't ignore the religious right. The religious right is massive. Um, it, it's massive both in terms of the amount of money they have, in terms of the ability to bring people out to vote, uh, and, and in terms of, uh, you know, just the sheer number of activists who are associated with the religious right. Now, this is the great tragedy of American politics. Uh, the great tragedy of American politics is that you cannot form a free market coalition that even is neutral on social issues, never mind has the right position. You cannot form a free market coalition neutral on social issues uh, big enough to have enough of an impact. At least you couldn't in the past. Now, I, you know, I travel a lot in speaking in front of these kind of groups. So, you know, I, I spoke in front of, I don't know, probably three, four Tea Party groups in the last two weeks. And, and yesterday and the day before, I was um, with Leadership Program of the Rockies, which is a, a group of uh, conservative kind of free markets, Republican, um, a, a lot of activists. And, and even there, you can see a real split between the religious right and the others. And there is a there's a real hunger among many people. And the question is, is it enough to just focus on? And this is, of course, the mandate, original mandate of the Tea Party, to just focus on the um, uh, to just focus on the on the free market issues and not to deal with the social issues. But you know, that's me, right? They're telling me this. This is people who show up to my talk, so it's a biased. You know, it's a biased group. And uh, the question then is, is it a big enough group and is it an influential enough group? And are we going to be able to are going to be uh, we be able to create a big enough coalition to have a real impact within the Republican Party? I think it needs to be tried. I think it definitely needs to be tried because what alternative is there? But the fact is that, um, uh, you know, if you take if you take the Republicans and most of them are going to be religious, they're just going to agree not to deal with religious issues, or they're going to agree to separation of church and state. They're going to agree that it's not a political issue. And, uh, you know, the better libertarians, if if you could put all that together into a winning coalition, you know, I don't know. Cotavilla might be right. You might not be able to. But it's but but we need we need to try. And and, and I see you're asking about Ann Coulter. Ann Coulter is the religious right. I mean, uh, she's awful in that respect. Let me, let me give you a terrible example of something that she said recently. She's a frequent guest on Red Eye, which I yeah. watch. Yeah. And they were talking about a football player who has been accused of committing murder. I can't remember his name. She said she believes he's innocent because he's a good Christian. It was pathetic. And one of the other guests really ripped up her logic because she just she had nothing to stand on at all. No, she doesn't. I mean she's she's a she's very good at ripping liberals. She's very good at attacking the left. She comes up with very clever one liners and she rips them to shreds. Absolutely. And she's very entertaining when she does that. 
But any time she has to present a positive vision, she's pathetic. She's terrible. She's terrible on economic issues. She's terrible on, on uh, state uh, and church separation. But so the point is this. I, I think an attempt to create such a coalition is worth attempting, whether it's a third party or whether it's just a big force within the Republican Party. Uh, you know, the challenge is you need leadership for such an attempt. And I don't see uh, I don't see strong leadership for that. I, I don't see who's uh, who's going to stand up, who's got the charisma, who's got the, the ability to rally these people together uh, in order to um, in order to create a real force. And he's willing to say right up front, social issues we're putting on the back burner or we're just we don't believe social issues um you know, we believe that social issues the Republican Party has been wrong on and we need new. Now, I need a lot of people like that more now after the election than before. The question is, is it enough? And the question is, what do we do with them? And how do how do we form? How do we do something? How do we create this coalition? One thing I do know for sure is that we shouldn't necessarily listen to someone like this and then say, oh, we're going to be discouraged and not try. That there is at least reason to think it's possible to come up with a coalition that won't necessarily go uh, for the religious issues, the social issues. Well, and suddenly, if they, you know, if if uh, if we're going to be part of the coalition, then we cannot cannot be a part of a coalition uh, with religious rights. So, um, you know, so to to the extent that the Republicans try, who knows what the Republicans try? I mean, we have no influence in the Republicans, but to the extent that we get involved, co objectivists. Um, we, you know, you cannot tolerate getting involved with and sanctioning the, uh, you know, the the primitivism of uh, of the religious rights and the primitivism of people like like Coulter to say something like that about a, 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 a suspected murderer or, or somebody said here she's trying to make the, it harder to get a divorce or the many other things uh, that the religious right would like to pass that can't be sanctioned. So let's hope. Since we don't, we have very little say within the, the conservative movement. Let's hope that they get their act together and that a free market coalition does arise uh, to challenge not only the establishment but also the religious right. And I think, you know, and I think they, there's a real chance of, of, of winning if such a coalition comes together because I think they detract a bunch of people in the center and on the left. I think a lot of people vote Democratic because of the social issues. Right. A lot of people vote Democratic because of the social issues. And if you had a real agenda, a real pro-free market, you know, again, they don't, they're not going to be as radical as I am, right? Uh, but, uh, but a generally pro-free market approach with a rational approach to the social issues, to immigration, uh, to, uh, to gay issues, to abortion – then I, you know, I think you would attract a lot of people who vote Democratic, particularly young people. I mean, that's what kills the Republican Party with young people is the social issues. Right. They they can't comprehend the economic issues. They're too young to comprehend them. They don't live. They don't get a salary. They don't. You know, they still don't know the consequences of statism. So the only way the only way young people really vote, or many young people vote, is on the social issues. They feel more connected to those issues. Right. And they are not going to vote for Republicans who they believe is being just old and stodgy and out of date. Well, in religion, remember, yeah. you know, this is to their virtue, is is religion is old and stodgy and of the previous century or, or previous two, two centuries ago. The 20th century actually saw many people revolt against religion. So, um you know, I think I think to attract those people, you have to have a a, a new approach, a new coalition. 
Those of you who haven't noticed, we did actually make it into the chat room, so we are able to see your comments and questions if you want to go ahead and put them there as well. The number, if you want to call in, is 760-888-5817. And we're going to shift gears a little bit here to talk about the impending sequester cuts that would take place on Friday unless some weird compromise is crafted in uh, in Congress and, and with the White House. But it doesn't seem very hopeful right now. As far as I can tell, they're in this big standoff and they're pointing fingers at each other. Obama's trying to blame everybody else for it, but he had as much to do with it. And in fact, I heard some article that discussed that he sort of crafted the sequester through the back door in a certain way. Questions for you, Yaron. First of all, what happens if the sequestration kicks in? Is it the end of the world? Everything stops. We all die. Uh, so there's that. Is it is it really as horrible as some of only, the only DC dies? <laughs> that's really good. Um, no, nothing will happen. Uh, nothing will happen. This is great. I am so excited about sequestration. This should be a good news item. Um, <laughs> the worst thing that could happen between now and Friday is that they cut a deal, because that means the Republicans have sold out again. Uh, because uh, I don't think Obama will compromise. So only only the Republicans could compromise. This is great. Look. They cannot decide on specific cuts. It, it, they're too many, uh, you know, they're too entrenched. The Democrats won't cut entitlements and welfare and so on. And the Republicans won't cut defense and other pet projects that they have. I mean, Republicans won't even cut subsidies to business, right? They, they, they won't cut anything. Nobody will cut anything. The general, I mean, the myth is Republicans want to cut spending. No, they don't. They love the idea that they don't have to. So sequestration basically, other than entitlements, uh, it, it cuts a little bit of Medicare, but other than entitlements, it basically cuts everything. By, you know, overall, it cuts the, the government spending for a very short period of time by 3%. Now, that doesn't mean government spending doesn't increase. This is the bizarre thing, right? It cuts it at 3%, and then it goes right back to increasing. So even though it cuts $1.2 trillion over the next decade, government spending over the next decade goes up by over $2 trillion. Right, only in Washington, only politicians. If you did this kind of accounting in your business, you would go to jail. It's it's called fraud. So there's no cuts here. Let's let's be very clear. The cuts are short term. There are no long term cuts. Everything long term spending is increasing now, because they won't touch entitlements. These programs are being cut more than three percent. So three percent is what the total budget. So some of these programs are being cut by between eight to fifteen percent, which is significant. Yay! You know, I wish they were close at 100, right? I mean, I don't care where they cut. Everything the government does today, they do too much of. And people say, oh, what about defense? There's tons of stuff they could cut. How about uh, stopping to build sewer systems in uh, in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm. How about, uh, you know, not building stupid weapon systems that they're never going to use? How about actually, you know, focusing defense budget on protecting America and doing what's necessary to annihilate our enemies? Uh, so... You know, there's so many social programs now that the Pentagon involves in. There's so many things. There's so many things that have nothing to do with the protection of Americans. It's, you could cut a lot more than than what they're talking about in sequestration of cutting defense. You can cut defense by 20, 30 percent, is my guess. And you would, you know, if you focus the money on the right things, you would improve the ability of the America to defend itself. But no, I, I think it's wonderful. I hope there are many more like this. Um, you know, cutting is always good. The more they cut, the better. It's it's somewhere between, you know, people are telling me it's on three percent to two and a half, somewhere between two and a half percent and three percent, depending on how you exactly measure it. Um, 
you know, 10% cuts across the board is a good start. Uh, you could go to 20. I do 20 every year for the next five years. What, what did you think of Gary Johnson's 43% across the board, though? I thought that was a bit arbitrary, but... Well, I mean, that's great. Again, I'm for any cuts, the bigger, the better. But, of course, you cannot cut. 43% on defense? Yeah, 43% is, it sounds little, high on defense. Much, yeah. But, again, I, I, you know, if they're willing to cut everything else by 43%, I would take it. Because I still think the United States can defend itself if it's willing to fight with 57% of its military budget. Right, on right. the other hand, everything else the government does, almost everything else the government does, it shouldn't be doing. So if you can eliminate 43% of everything else the government does, I'm willing to give up a little bit on the defense. But but this is the problem. I mean, this, this sequestration won't actually work. The Republicans will cut a deal. It might not happen this week because they'll play tough to play to their constituency. But in a month, in a few weeks, they'll cut a deal. These cuts will never happen. The cuts won't happen until we actually feel the pain. They won't happen until the government can't actually pay its debts. You won't get this until we're Greece, until we're Spain. They will not cut. And because the Republicans have no incentive to go through the cuts, they're afraid. They, remember, many Republicans are Keynesians as well. So they believe that this is going to hurt the economy and going to hurt people and, and it's going to, they're going to hurt them uh, in the ballot box. So, no, I, if the, I, I just hope that this actually goes through. Uh, and that they don't backtrack, which I think, which I think they actually will. Well, and, and here's the other thing, though, that's fighting against it. There was a hot air piece of February 22nd posted by Ala Pundit, and it was a poll of the public saying that the public at large opposes cuts to virtually all types of government spending. So it's the public, too. It's not just the politicians. Yeah, no, this is the problem in America today. You know, I don't blame politicians. We get the politicians we deserve. It's us. We're at fault. And, uh, you know, the public wants smaller government but doesn't want any particular program to be smaller. Now, again, in my view, this is a lack of leadership. Uh, the public generally don't know anything about politics and they don't know anything about government. And they're not that, you know, they're not that intelligent or more importantly, they're not that educated. This is a lack of leadership, intellectual leadership, first and foremost, and political leadership. Somebody has to articulate the case for smaller government. Romney? No. No. And who? They're bringing uh, up Romney in the chat room, and I don't, I don't yeah. think there would have been much. In Paul the way of Ryan? Yeah. Paul Ryan, whose budget balances the budget in 2040, and uh, government spending increase in his budget every year by 3%. Who is the brave Republican, the brave political leader, who stands up and defends, and defends dramatically shrinking government? Just one political leader. It would be great in a, in a clear. Did you hear that in uh, in uh, Rubio's uh, State of the Union? I didn't. I mean, it was in Rand Paul's State of the Union, mm -hmm. but in very vague, very vague terms. He never got very specific. He never actually articulated what they catch. He never challenged the existence of Medicare and Medicaid. He never actually challenged anything. He just generally said we need smaller government and we need to limit government. And it was a, it was a good speech. You know, relative to the others, it was much better. But even Rand Paul, as good as he is on many of these issues, won't actually address it. Now, he does have a budget that he's proposing, which, which, is, a, which is a really terrific budget that actually cuts, real cuts, uh, a much better budget than Paul Ryan. So um, if you're looking for anybody, Rand Paul is the best on domestic policy and, and the one person who could lead. I mean, if Rand Paul was willing to say, look, I'm putting social issues aside. I, I'm not going to press this personhood amendment, which he's a big fan of. I'm not going to press. I'm not going to talk about abortion. I'm going to leave all the social issues aside. 
I'm going to lead a pro-free market coalition of Republicans. That would be a really good thing because I think he's articulate. He's much better than his father in terms of being articulate. He doesn't come across as kooky. He's trying to build up some foreign policy credentials and pretend that he's good on foreign policy. I'm not convinced completely, but he's much even on that. He's much better than his much dad. Much saner. <laughs> much saner. Um, I I could you know I could uh, get behind a, uh, a Rand Paul leading that coalition. Um, and and again, he he's the one guy who's actually presented not in the State of the Union. But he actually presented in his budget real proposals uh, in terms of cutting, real cutting government spending. Now, if you put Alan West with Rand Paul, boy, that could be an interesting ticket. But anyway, yeah, we, but we Alan, dream. Rand Paul would never take Alan West because on foreign policy, they disagree to the two white. And I don't know Alan West that well. Um, I understand now he's got a show on PJTV. Wow. And I think they've, yeah, he's become, he's the big host on PJTV. And, and I think I'm doing a segment there um, in a couple of weeks. So uh, I'll try to get to know Alan West better. Excellent. Um, but I don't know how he is on domestic issues. It sounds like, uh, now, wait a minute. I'm not behind Rand Paul, right? <laughs> That's Zach. <laughs> I said if, 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 then, then, then. So don't jump, Zach. It's not that exciting. Um, Rand Paul is better than his dad. And if he, 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 he distanced himself from his really radical social agenda, I would be more supportive of him, but but you know I recognize the virtues that these guys have, and his father had almost none. Yeah, and and Rand Paul is really excellent on Patriot Act stuff too. I've yep. seen him give some great speeches on that, but he has a lot of shortcomings too, and we'd like to see how that plays out as, as uh, the time goes on. I do want to let Bosch Boston come in here and talk about some stuff too, Yaron. Before you leave, first of all, thank you for coming and, and chiming in today. I wanted you to be able to talk about what events you have coming up. And, of course, go out and buy Free Market Revolution, which is the book that Yaron has yeah. co-authored with Don Watkins. If you haven't gotten it yet, you have no excuse at all. Can't we just tell Rand Paul what to think? No, he won't listen to us. Um, look, uh, so go buy the book. It's on Kindle. It's on audio. It's everywhere. And, and uh, you know, uh, we need to get this book out. Don't If you've read it, then just buy it for friends. Uh, it's a great gift. Um, Tuesday, I'm in New York. I'm, uh, here's, here's my schedule in New York. 7.30, I'm doing the daily ticker for Yahoo. So that'll be up, uh, up on their website later in the day. So look for daily ticker. Uh, about an hour after that. So that's 8.30. I'm doing a uh, radio show, uh, in Atlanta, uh, uh, remotely. It's, uh, I think it's, uh, early afternoon. I think it's at 12. I'm doing Wilkow. Wilkow is a very popular right-wing talk show host on Sirius, uh, Sirius uh, XM radio. So if you have Sirius XM, uh, look him up. Uh, he's, he's actually very good and a huge Ayn Rand supporter. He's, he's very good on, on Ayn Rand. Uh, right after Wilkow, I go and I'm, I, I'm taping a segment for Josh Stossel, which will air on Thursday. After that, I cook up with Wilkow again for his TV show, which plays on The Blaze. So we're doing that. And then I might be doing another Blaze show later that night. So that's Tuesday. Uh, Thursday, I'm doing two um, lectures for congressional staffers uh, for the Senate uh, for breakfast and for the House of Representatives for lunch. Um, and that's this week. But stay tuned. There's a lot of uh, I'm doing a lot of college um, campus talks coming up in mid-March. I'm going to be in Atlanta I will be in North Carolina in the uh, Durham-Raleigh 
uh, Chapel Hill area. I'm going to be uh, in, um, let's see, New York again, uh, probably in Baruch College. Uh, I will be then the week after that. See, I can't, it's hard to keep track. Um, Oh yeah, Michigan. And, and by, Michigan by the State. way, you, you guys, he's sitting here telling us all this without even looking at his calendar. <laughs> he knows this off the top of his head, yeah, right. which I think David Allen of Getting Things Done would tell you bad, bad, bad to keep all this in your head. But I go don't on. try, believe me. Okay. Um, and I can't remember what I did yesterday. So it, the past, <laughs> the way I function is the past gets erased and it, to create, to create, uh, you know, because uh, because Amy was asking, were you in like in Denver yesterday? And uh, yeah, I think I was. That's oh, right. Oh my gosh. Um, so uh, Michigan State, I'll be in Chicago at Loyola. A bunch of these are debates, by the way, with university professors, so they should be a lot of fun. So if you're in Michigan, if you're in Illinois, if you're in New York, if you're in North Carolina, uh, and if you're in uh, Georgia, uh, you have an opportunity to come in, uh, and uh, visit. So please come to the talks. Uh, they're always fun. It's always fun to meet you. I'll be signing. I'm sure I'll be signing books at all these talks. And So bring your book or buy a book there. Um, I don't know what club it is at Bowie College, but it is it is a uh, it is a, it is a club there. It's not a, a lot of these, by the way, are not objectivist clubs. Some of them are student uh, Republican clubs, and some of them are student libertarian clubs. So uh, many of them are not uh, objectivist clubs. Okay. Well, thank you again, Yaron. Check out his blog at capitalism.einrand.org as well. You can find out information about the book, appearances, and all kinds of stuff there. Follow him on Twitter too. Yaron Brook. Yeah, Twitter and uh, and uh, Facebook. Uh, so Yaron Brook on Twitter. I'm trying to get up to like 20,000. How come all these other people have 20,000 and I'm like stuck? I haven't even got the Ayn Rand bot at 20,000 yet. A, it's, it's pushing to 12. I'm but at 4,800 or something. And and yeah, I should be I should be beating all those people at 20,000. And then, uh, yeah, like me on Facebook um, and uh, LinkedIn and, you know, whatever else you can think of. And there are tons of videos of me on YouTube. Go go watch them. Yay. Thank you, thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and start on the next story while Bosch is getting ready to come in here. Yeah, Bosch Fossen's going to come in. we got a story to talk about with him. Since it is Oscar evening, since I am here competing with the Oscars for audience, thank you all for tuning in today, and thank you for participating in the chat room, those of you who are there. Here's a story that I stole shamelessly from Red Eye. I was kind of scandalized at this. And I've printed it out of Tulsa World, but it's just an Associated Press story. Headline, February 21st, film students replace buxom beauties as Oscar statuette helpers. And it says, you know those tall, leggy beauties that normally carry the Oscar trophies so the stars can present them? They have been replaced this year by aspiring filmmakers. Six college students from across the country won a contest to help present the Oscar statuettes this year. Here's a quote from the Academy representative. Quote, This tradition of the buxom babe that comes out and brings the trophy to the presenter to give to the winner seemed to be very antiquated and kind of sexist too. End quote. This is Neil Moran, who's the co-producer of the Academy Awards. He says, quote, they're just there to be objectified. Why can't we have people who actually care about film and are the future of film be the trophy presenters? End quote. What do you think there in the chat room? Uh, now, Robert in the chat room says he's boycotting the Oscars because it's going to be an Obama love fest and it's sickening. Zach in the chat room says, I like the hot chicks. Uh, there was a guest on 
Red Eye, who was excellent, and I'm forgetting his name right now. He's on Imus in the Morning, I believe, or he's a producer of it. And he said, look, people tune in to see, yes, the sexy women, but he also discussed the idea that the Oscars were about glamour. What about glamorous, beautiful women presenting these awards to the people who are the most accomplished in their industries? What happened to that? Uh, something else that was said during the Red Eye show by Dana Perino, I thought she was uh, very excellent on this point. She says, look, these film students who are getting to be these presenters, they're young. And she was talking about one in particular who was 19 years old who hadn't accomplished anything in the film industry in particular. What they had to do is that they had to win a contest. They had to write an essay and present a video. And, and you had to say, how will you contribute to the future of film? So, Suppose that they said something that was compelling about how they were going to contribute to the future of film. That's what they've accomplished in order to get to the Oscars. So apparently this 19-year-old was saying, oh, my gosh, I've, I've dreamed my whole life of getting to the Oscars, and now I'm getting to go. Look, it's not as if you are winning or that you've been nominated in any category. You are getting, in effect, to take the place of a model, and what you're doing in, in taking the place of the model is taking away some of the glamour and, and the beauty of, of the ceremony. So I don't know what it looks like. I don't know if it's going on right now. Is the Oscars going on right now, Bosch, by the way? No. They haven't started, so it's all the red carpet stuff still right now. I think. I, I mean, I, I'd rather see the, the gorgeous models. I mean, I Absolutely. think. If, if there's one thing that has glamour in it these days, it's the Oscars. That's the one thing that you almost rely on if you just want to see that. Absolute glamour. And, and it seems like what they're doing is, is taking away from that entirely here. So it's uh, it's sadness. What do people say here in the chat room? Because the young filmmakers are not hot. Now, if, if we have, you know, hot, attractive filmmakers, that's fine. I think I saw a picture of one of them, and it wasn't, first of all, it wasn't even a female, but it was it was some guy who wasn't particularly good-looking. Uh so I, I don't think that you're going to see particularly good-looking film students. I don't mm -hmm. think that, that 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 was their standard at all. I think it's they want people who are in the industry and excited about film, but I don't think this is the place for it. I think no, what I mean, you want is something beautiful and glamorous. I mean, why didn't you, instead of having a lush stage setting with beautiful drapes and all kinds of lights and everything else, why not have something that looks like a film set? Right. Because that would be more authentic, right? right? Why not Why not go there? Go so away. That was, uh, that was yeah, uh, Juji Fruit in the chat room says, I agree that they're just making it mundane. Yeah, I mean, it's... <laughs> Zach's, Zach's worried about taking the jobs away from the models. I mean, who knows that the models might not be the future of film themselves? We don't know this. They're they're, well, they're beautiful. They're, yeah, they're chosen to do this. They might be models. in films. Yeah, there are many too. models who turn actresses. I mean, they do. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's... But it, it's those models. They're doing their job. They're there to look great. And these these filmmakers, what are they doing there? You know? They're, they're what? They're presenting something? They're not, wait, they're not even presenting. They're just giving the... I guess awards or yeah, they're just handing the statues, and if anything, so they're not doing their job. In you're, that just, sense. you're just going to be drawing attention to them because the the models themselves. It wasn't like you paid particular attention. No, you said here's an award ceremony. So beautiful window you dressing. See a beautiful woman just handing a statue, yeah. but now it's going to stick out like a sore thumb yeah. as well. The the handing over of the statues, and and they're probably going to make it that way. So it'll be interesting to see what the reaction is, what people think of it, what the ratings are, etc. Let's go ahead and discuss the story that you wanted to talk about, Bosch, and that's why we have you here. Well, it was, 
Um, and and let, I'll just introduce it. So Bosch showed me this week a recent comic book cover, and it was supposed to be an homage to Iwo Jima. What it did was, and you know there's that iconic image where you have a number of soldiers who are holding up a flag, and that's the homage, to, that's the symbol of, of Iwo Jima. So on this cover, you have superheroes yeah. holding up the American flag, and one of them is a recently the introduced... Mo- the most prominent in the image. Yeah, the most prominent one in the image is a recently introduced Muslim, quote-unquote, superhero, right yeah. front and center. Yeah. So I was going to see if you could tell Nothing. us about it's, it. To me, it's, just, it's offensive again, because um, they don't touch jihad. The only reason why they have this guy is because, first of all, everyone's talking about Islam. Why is everyone talking about Islam? Because it means peace, because it's because it's good? No, because of 9-11, because of horror, because of terror. So they bypass the whole reason why we are talking about Islam and say, you know what, let's make a, a, another Green Lantern, let's, let's make him a Muslim. And uh, it's, 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 a, um, it's a, I think, Christian Arab who created him. And say, like, okay, why didn't he make him a Christian, but whatever. And it's just, to me, it's just indicative of, of the entire post-9-11 America where you know uh, the Iwo Jima, the the image. It, it was a symbol. It was a symbol of uh, victory, uh, American victory over our enemies. And now you got these guys putting a Muslim there in the middle of a war, being waged us by the Muslim world. And it's to me, it's a symbol of our our capitulation. Right, but, and that, uh, that that was the point that I, I found so yeah. compelling from you, Bosch, was that you've taken something that was a symbol of American victory, yeah. and you've turned it into a symbol of our capitulation. To the culture that wants yeah, to destroy us. Exactly right. Yeah. And glorifying him, you know, you'll never find a Muslim terrorist in DC Comics. Uh, there's countless now heroes, superheroes, quote unquote, Muslims in in DC Comics, and even nothing of one or two in Marvel. And post 9/11, they couldn't wait to get out there. You know, all, they're not all they're not all terrorists. That's not the point. Now, this particular cover, they're asking there in the chat room, and I wanted to ask you as well, what what is this a cover to? It's a cover to Justice League of America, number one. Now, keep that in mind also, because they, they uh, DC, I guess, re- renumbered all their series to number one last year, and the, it was called the Justice League. You know, they took out America. They took out now, America. it's even obscene, because now it's called the Justice League of America. On the, on the cover of issue one, they put a Muslim... Green Lantern in the most prominent position, holding the American flag. You got to keep that in mind. Also, I don't think of uh, patriotism and Muslims together. I don't. I grew up in uh, with family who, you know, they were they were back very ambivalent. They hated it. They loved it back and forth. And we were quote unquote considered moderate Muslims. And this Muslim, I don't know what he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be a, I don't know, a victim of the post 9/11 world, and now he gets rewarded. And also, just just one simple thing: in World War II, would we ever would we ever have seen a Japanese American soldier, a German American soldier, carrying that flag in Iwo Jima? Never. It, it, I mean, there were Japanese soldiers and probably German descent, but there would have been obscene to actually make that specifically in a DC comic and do that. It just wouldn't happen. And yeah, it just it's another uh, DC Comics submission to this Islam means peace crap. And as I put it, you know, I think a, a year or two ago, this Islamic crap. Right, and it's just it's just it's just frustrating to see because we'll never see the enemy get it the way they ought to. We only see Muslims being glorified, uh, with uh, without any mention of why we're even talking about about Muslims in Islam. Zero. Zach in the chat room has put a link to the image which Thanks, which Bosch shared this week. Thanks, Zach. If you want to subscribe to Bosch Faustin's public updates there on Facebook, he puts this stuff out there for people to see. 
And the other thing that you can do is look at Bosch Faustin's great work at Front Page Magazine. But before our hour just slips away from us, I want to actually get into a few good news stories because I have vowed to, throughout 2013, end off with some stories that are some good news. This one is courtesy of Matthew Nelson, who posted this on the Don't Let It Go Unheard page on Facebook. So thank you, Matthew. It is a story from Forbes written by Christopher Hellman, Forbes staff, and I point this out because he says, I'm based in Houston, Texas, which is the energy capital of the world. And I'm pointing this out because the story is about North Dakota. North Dakota may indeed shift to become the energy capital of the world. This, you know, I think there's a lot of fracking that's going on in North Dakota. But this particular story is about oil. The headline is, and again, it's from... Uh, actually, this is an older story. I guess it's from 2011. It says, uh, oh. Ty- Tycoon says North Dakota oil field will yield 24 billion barrels among the world's biggest oil field. And I guess it's Harold Ham. Harold Ham is investing a, bil- a billion dollars into um, drilling crude oil in North Dakota. And um, it says that uh, basically he's thinking he's going to make some money now because oil is back up at $100 so he can afford to do it here even with the $50 cost, et cetera, that it's profitable enough. So if we actually have a huge oil field in North Dakota along with all the fracking, that would indeed be good news. Other places you can look for good news this week, I've seen two stories from Joshua LaPana over at the Objective Standard blog. Uh, One of them was a discussion of an event last Sunday where Alex Epstein, who was the head of the Center for Industrial Progress, he led something called the Light Brigade in Washington, D.C., which was a counter-protest to the people who were trying to shut down the Keystone Pipeline. Also at the Objective Standard, there was a story about the fact that there exists bipartisan support for repealing at least one part of Obamacare which is the part that taxes medical devices. Uh, And then finally, I've got one more, which is that the Lakers won over the Dallas Mavericks today. Ha, ha, ha. I know many of you aren't Lakers fans, but it's also not your show, so I can talk about the Lakers winning as part of my good news segment. What do we got here in the chat room? Sierra Club has agreed to debate against Alex Epstein, which is excellent. So there's a new Indiegogo campaign to raise funds for that. That would be very nice. I'm hoping that that took place as a result of his efforts at the Light Brigade. That was one thing I was going to ask is whether his efforts traveling out to Washington, D.C. and and organizing this counter-protest, whether they yielded something, and it looks like it did. So that is excellent. Uh, Zach in the chat room says he hates basketball. Oh, April 16th at Stanford will be the debate with Alex Epstein uh, against a member of Sierra Club. So that should be fascinating. I'm very glad that people are out there fighting for proper energy policy. Again, everybody's got to do their thing. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and give the person who's been holding for so long. Can you quickly tell me the synopsis of what was going on in the movie in terms of criticizing Ayn Rand? You said oh, again. Hi, Amy. Yeah. Uh, by the way, just on on one note, um, Ann Coulter. I mean, uh, the zenith of hypocrisy. She's never been married, and she's uh, come out with this uh, edict on don't you can't to make divorce uh, harder. I mean, 
I, I don't know what's gone on with Anne, but she's been disappointing lately. Um, yes, I, we went to um, identity theft last night, and it's about this um, Melissa is is the actress, the comedian who steals this man's identity, Jason Bateman, whom I love, of course, but his boss is getting... I hmm? know the reference. But can you quickly say what was said about? Oh Rand- yeah, okay, okay. The boss, the boss, okay. The boss is getting a one point two million dollar bonus, and so he when when he's um, protesting that he says, "Well, we're the cat, we're the people that give you your jobs. You you should uh, appreciate us because if it weren't for us, you wouldn't have any jobs because we're the capitalists. If you don't believe me, go read the Fountainhead." And I just I just couldn't believe it. So just I, mean, I heard a- this. Another negative reference to to Ayn Rand. Um, in, a, in a Hollywood movie that everybody is watching now, and and then they they come back too with it's okay for this woman. They give her, they exonerate her for stealing the guy's identity because she was in seven foster homes. And I even said out loud, "Oh, that gives her the right to 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 ruin this man's uh, life and his family." I mean, I said that out loud in the in the movie theater. I just. But- I have to cut you off here. Everybody who's listening, I thank you for joining in today. Uh, I'm actually being cut off right now, so I'm talking only to my recording. But what you can do if you want to go ahead and make a comment on this show, go to DontLetItGo.com. You can also join the Facebook page, Don't Let It Go Unheard. You can follow me on Twitter. At my blog, not only can you comment on today's show, you can also find a link there that will allow you to contribute to the podcast. Several people have contributed so far, very generously, some of them, and I thank you for that. At my blog, also under the Amy tab, you can read my bio, and you can get information on having me come and speak at your event, your club, your tea party event, etc. So go check that out as well. Finally, if you do like the show, please go and spread the word. This is a word of mouth operation. My mouth is only so big. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. <laughs>